Our study of the book of Revelation brings us today to the 11th chapter. Interesting, when we think about the fact the book has 22 chapters, we come today to the 11th. So we're getting here to the central or the middle part of the book in terms of its length. Revelation chapter 11. I recall to your mind the overall structure of Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18. It is based on the seven-sealed book that was given by the Lord God Almighty on the throne to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He took the book, and this book had seven seals, and he opens the seals thereof. This is the book of judgment, the judgment that God has ordained against his enemies. In particular, in the book of Revelation, those enemies, surprisingly, are the Jews themselves, who rejected Jesus Christ, who crucified him, and who have persecuted relentlessly the disciples of Jesus Christ as the church is being founded. But the time of judgment has come. As Jesus himself prophesied in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, the time of judgment has arrived. And the book of Revelation is a filling out of the Olivet Discourse of the judgment upon Israel for its rejection of Jesus Christ. And these seven seals give to us those judgments. They show us the plagues or the wrath of God as each seal is broken. When the sixth seal is broken, we have an interlude, the first interlude, chapter 7, where we see the 144,000 of the tribes of Israel and then the multitude that no man can number. This leads then to the seventh seal, that is open in chapter 8, verse 1. But the seventh seal has no content directly. Instead, we have the seven trumpets, which is led to believe that the seventh seal is, or the seven trumpets are the contents of the seventh seal. But then when we look at these trumpets, we realize they're covering the same ground as the first seals. We're given the second witness, in other words, to those judgments. After the sixth trumpet in chapter 9, verses 13 to 21, we come to our second interlude, and that is where we are now in our study of the book of Revelation. Our second interlude. This is in chapter 10 through chapter 11 and verse 13, and there are three parts to this interlude. First of all, in chapter 10, we have the mighty angel and the book, the small book that's in his hand. It was our purpose last week to look at that. We noted that the mighty angel is actually Christ himself. We should not be surprised that he is given to us under that title of an angel because that's how he served Israel and his God, the pre-incarnate Son of God in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And here he appears one more time, but not as Israel's friend but as their adversary. And we have this vision where he announces that the mystery of God is complete. It is finished. And we saw last week that the mystery of God is the same mystery that the Apostle Paul so carefully explains in the book of Ephesians and in the book of 
Colossians. This is the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, the mystery of the New Testament church that was not fully revealed in the Old Testament. Yes, it was said that the Gentiles would come to God, but it wasn't fully revealed at that point that the new Israel, the new people of God would be the Jew, believing Jew, the believing Gentile in one body in Christ. And what this is telling us in the interlude as it prepares us for the seventh trumpet, which announces the end of Israel, what does that mean to the church? In the historical outworking of God's plan of redemption, A.D. 70, when the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed, also is the marking point that the church of Jesus Christ is now fully established in the world and fully functional. In other words, the ending of the Old Testament order does not happen in this definitive way until the church itself is fully functional. The transition period from Old Testament to New Testament is over. And in light of that fact that the seventh trumpet announces the end, the question might be to John, well, is my work done as a prophet? No, the, the small book in his hand. He says, John, your work's not done. I've got a lot more for you to do. And that is symbolized in John taking that small book. Now we come to the 11th chapter. The second part of this interlude. There are two parts to this. The first is a command to John to measure the temple. The second part of chapter 11 is this vision, this prophecy, I should say, of two witnesses of Christ, who are given power by Christ to prophesy for 1,260 days in the city of Jerusalem. And we will not be going into that today except a few references to that. That will be the subject, Lord willing, of next week's sermon. Instead, we intend to spend the whole day here today, the whole sermon on chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, we should say at the beginning here of chapter 11, there is much disagreement among interpreters concerning both of these parts. That is, what the measuring of the temple signifies and who these two witnesses are. Many claim that it constitutes the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation. And when you think how difficult Revelation itself can be, this is an um, indication of the trouble that we can face when we come to the 11th chapter. But I think there is hope for understanding. I don't think it's as mysterious, perhaps, as some would make it. And I think there's a way forward in chapter 11 if we pay attention to two things, which, by the way, we've been trying to pay attention to through the whole book of Revelation. My point is, let's not lose sight of these two things. What are they? Number one, that the controlling factors of the main message and the time constraints imposed on us both at the beginning and the end of the book of Revelation are still in effect in chapter 11. What is the theme of the book of Revelation and what are the time constraints wherein these events that are spoken of take place? Those two things are absolutely essential for understanding not only the whole book of Revelation, but chapter 11. We have seen that the main message of Revelation is Jesus Christ coming in judgment on the people of Israel for their apostasy and for their piercing of him. 
That is, they crucified him. Revelation verse, chapter 1, verse 7. And we have seen this coming is fulfilled, was fulfilled in the Jewish-Roman War of A.D. 66 and 70. Because as we labor to show in the early parts of Revelation, this idea of coming is used in the Bible over and over and over as God's historical interventions to judge wickedness. He comes in his righteousness to judge evil and establish justice in the earth. And if you will look in a concordance and look at the comings of the Lord, particularly as they're spoken of in the Old Testament, you will see these are not literal physical comings. They're the coming of God in his providence, the coming of God in his righteousness to judge evildoers and evil nations. This is the coming of revelation when the Lord comes in judgment on those who crucified him. Now, these time constraints that I spoke of are clearly established in the book. And we must look at these time constraints as we study chapter 11. In chapter 1 and verse 1, we are told that the things in the book of Revelation, from the standpoint of John, who was receiving them, so it was, it was the first century, these are things which must shortly come to pass. They are just about ready to happen, we are told, from the perspective of John and his hearers. It also says this, for the time is at hand. Putting that together, here's what Revelation's about. Things which must shortly come to pass, for the time is at hand. When we speak of something being at hand, it means it's right there. It's not far away. If the book of Revelation was speaking about things in our day, or even beyond our day, which some people claim, how could these things be and the time be at hand? But it doesn't just stop there. In the book of Revelation, we have in the end of it the very same claims for the book. In other words, it begins and it ends its introduction and its conclusion emphasize the time frame of the book. In Revelation 20, in verse 6, it says that Christ... And in the things he's revealed in the book are about, quote, the things which must shortly be done. Then he says, behold, I come quickly. And then he says unto me, John says, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of the book, for the time is at hand. And that sealing is interesting because Daniel, at the end of his book, was told to seal the book up because there was a long time until these things were fulfilled. Hundreds of years yet would take place before the prophecies of Daniel all came to fruition. So seal it up, Daniel, until the time of the end. Here at the end of Revelation, John says, John's told, do not seal it up, John, for the time is now. It's right now. It's at hand. And momentarily, these things will begin to unfold. So let's keep that in mind as we study this chapter that some say is almost impossible to understand. The second thing we need to keep in mind is the immediate context of the interlude of chapter 10 and 11. What is the immediate 
context, it's the preparation for the sounding of the seventh trumpet. In chapter 10, the question, what does the sounding of the seventh trumpet mean for the church, is answered by the words of Christ. We are told that by the time of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, signifying the fall of Jerusalem, the mystery of God is finished. As I've already mentioned, the transition from Old Testament to New Testament is complete. The church is fully functional as the new people of God. Now in chapter 11, the question is, why are Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed? As given in the seventh trumpet, why are they to be destroyed? Well, we have a twofold answer. Remember, we're preparing for the seventh trumpet in chapter 11 and also chapter 10. Why is this happening? Why is doom being predicted? Well, the first answer of chapter 11 is this. Because they have been measured, that is Israel, and found wanting. And number two, because they've rejected utterly the witness of Christ's two prophets. This morning we're going to look at the first. Why this seventh trumpet must sound It's because Israel has been measured and found wanting. So let's look now at chapter 11. With these two things in mind, the theme and the time constraints on the book and the context. Measuring the temple, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out. And measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city. Shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And when we come to chapter 11, and it says that, Uh, John received a, a reed that was given to him, and the angel stood and spoke. We understand that the chapter division here is not uh, signifying a change in scene or in the persons involved. Chapters were added as a convenience. In the original letter or the original book of Revelation, there was no chapter here, and chapter 10 and 11 are seamless. We are still looking at this mighty angel. We are still hearing the words of this mighty angel. It is the mighty angel that gives the rod to John and commands him to rise up and to measure the temple. That's the first thing that we should note here. There is a direct, unbroken scene that's being played out here for us. And the words being spoken are all part of this appearance of this mighty angel to John. And he appears and he gives to John an instrument for measuring a reed that was like a rod, a measuring rod, a measuring stick is the idea. And therefore this measuring stick would have would have had its uh, denominations on it. Like we have like a, a ruler that has inches and uh, feet and so on. So he is given this rod It's according to a standard, a measuring rod, just like a measuring stick we would use today. He is given this and he's told by the angel to rise up 
and measure the temple. It's interesting he says rise up. Remember the posture of John from the last chapter? He was writing. So he's probably sitting there with his scroll writing out the visions. We saw that he said, I was just about to write. And the angel said, don't write that one. Don't write that part. Remember that in chapter 10. So John lays aside. The idea is he lays aside his writing implements, his, his scroll, his paper, and he is to stand up now and take the reed in his hand and measure the temple of God. But not only the temple, he is also to measure the altar and them that worship therein. Now, I gave to you an insert in your bulletin today. You'll take that out now. We have here a a reconstruction of what the temple looked like in this sketch here in the days of John, the, the days of Jesus Christ. This is called the second temple. When we say the second temple, we mean the temple that was rebuilt when the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity because the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. When they came back under, under Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple. Now, this is not what they did in a day. The, the temple as it began was just the central structure. This is actually the results of many, many, many years of additions and beautification, particularly by Herod the Great, who was a tremendous builder. He was extremely skilled. He also uh, had the wealth of nations at his control, and he took and built this incredibly beautiful structure called the Second Temple. This is the temple that Jesus himself ministered in. This is the temple that the apostles ministered in. This is the temple that the Romans took and leveled to the ground so that not one stone was left upon another. Now John is to rise up and he is to measure three things here. The temple of God, the altar, and the worshipers. Furthermore, it is spoken of in the next verse that the court of the Gentiles, or the the outer court, he is to leave out. And it's made clear what temple is in view, because this temple is the one in the holy city, which is a biblical title for Jerusalem. And in verse 8, which we're not getting to today, in that very city which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, was the city where our Lord was crucified. We're talking about Jerusalem. So here we have in this uh, chapter, we have the temple of God still standing. The second temple, the temple of the time of Jesus. And John is to measure that temple. This is his, his, his commission. Now, this is very important proof that the book of Revelation was not written like later in the first century, near the end of John's life, like 95 or AD 95, but it was written before the destruction of the temple. This whole episode here indicates the temple is standing, and that temple that's standing is the one that is measured. The altar that is there and the, off- the sacrifices that are offered is what is measured. The worshipers who are there are who are measured in this. These details make it clear that John is not uh, looking at a metaphorical or symbolical structure, but he's looking at the actual structure and he is to measure it according to the commandment of Christ. This is important to see that this temple here is not a metaphor. It's not a symbol. It's the literal temple. 
because many believe that this temple is purely symbolic and that it's talking either about the remnant of the Jews or it's it's a symbol of the church itself. It's very strange to have a symbol so described. An altar, a court, two courts, worshipers, holy city. That type of description is never used when we talk about the church being the new temple of God. We're talking about the literal temple. And the reason why, again, if we keep our time constraints in place... These things were to take place shortly. These things were to take place in fulfillment also of the Olivet Discourse that said, Jesus said, all the things about the destruction of Jerusalem will happen to this generation. Within the generation of Jesus' hearers, all this takes place. This is the literal temple that we're looking at. It is not symbolic. Now, Stuart Russell makes this or makes these appropriate comments at this point. I want to read them. He says, If anything were wanting or lacking to prove that in these apocalyptic visions we are dealing with contemporary history, with facts, and with things extant in the days of St. John, it would be supplied by the passage before us. Here, we have distinct and decisive evidence with respect to the time and place. The vision speaks of the city and temple of Jerusalem, the literal city and the literal temple. They were therefore in existence when the apocalypse was written, for the vision before us predicts their destruction. It is important always to keep in mind that the whole action of the apocalypse is hastening on to a great catastrophe. Now, that is in John's day, not far off. Israel and Jerusalem are never for a moment out of sight. Two woe trumpets have already sounded the doom of the apostate nation. And the final consummation only waits the blast of the third. In such circumstances, nothing but coming destruction can be the theme. End of quote. Now the verb that is used here to measure literally means to determine something in terms of its size or weight. And you do this by means of a standard. The whole idea of weighing and measuring presupposes a standard by which you weigh and measure. The law of God says you shall not have faulty weights and measures. The only way you can measure something is if there's an established standard. And that's that's one of the roles of a civil government. Okay, so many, 16 ounces is a pound. And there is actually then... In existence, standard measures by which everything is weighed to make sure it's of the same weight or distance or distance. Twelve inches will equal a foot. Three feet will equal a yard. I mean, there has to be the standard or there can be no weights and measures. Okay, so John is told here to measure. Now, of course, the measurement here is that of taking into account the character, the deeds of those. In other words, it's metaphorical. This use of the word measure is its use throughout the New Testament. 
In Romans 12, 3, it says, To each one of us is given a measure, same word, of faith. God measures out to each one according to his standard of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to each one of us what he determines. But here's one that's important, Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. Of course, in the context, that means judge not unrighteously according to your own standards. Don't judge that way. Or you're going to be judged according to the same standards. He says, for what judgment you judge, you shall be judged with what, here's our word, measure. You meet or measure out, it shall be measured to you again. There it's used in a metaphysical, metaphorical way. The measure here is the kind of judgment that you employ upon others, that kind of judgment will then be employed upon you. And so here it's used measuring in terms of conduct. And you will be judged according to the measure of your own conduct. In Matthew 23, 31 to 33, which is very important because it's in the context of the Olivet Discourse, he says, Wherefore your witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. There's our word measure. What measure? The measure of their guilt. You're just like the ones who went before you in killing the prophets. So fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers by killing the prophets today, which is what they were going to do. He says, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? So here the measuring has to do with their conduct and their persecution of the prophets. And it leads to their judgment. So the measuring leads to judgment. This metaphor of measuring is used repeatedly in the Old Testament as well, of determining sin and judgment by the standard of God's word and law. So how do we measure conduct? How do we measure whether we're guilty and to the degree of our guilt and how we should be punished by a standard? And if it's talking about sin, we're talking about morals. Therefore, the morality of God's law, the ethics of God's law, the standards of right and wrong in God's law and in his word become that which we are measured by. And on the basis of that measurement, our righteousness or our guilt is determined. Here's what it says in Isaiah 65, 7. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. I will measure what they did according to the standards of my word and my law, and then I will take that measure and I will measure out the exact righteous judgment they deserve. So that's the idea of measurement here. Jeremiah 51, 13, O thou Babylon that dwellest upon many waters, abundant in treasures, thine end is come, and the measure of thy covetousness. Here he's talking about Babylon. He has measured this nation and said that your end is now come because I have measured your covetousness, your lust for things, your worship of the idol of materialism. I've measured it and my measurement says, time's up, you're done. 
So measurement is used here in terms of determining guilt and judgment. And then one that's very important, Lamentations 2, 7, and 8. Because this is talking about the first destruction of Jerusalem in the temple. And Lamentation was written after the fact. Jeremiah is looking at the beautiful city. It is rubble and ashes. And he's lamenting the judgment of God upon Jerusalem and the temple. He writes these words. The Lord hath cast off his altar. He hath abhorred his sanctuary. Remember in our context here, they're measuring the sanctuary, the altar, the temple. Cast off the altar, abhorred his sanctuary. He has given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. We're going to see here that he's going to give up this Jerusalem of chapter 11 to the Gentiles. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of a solemn feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Jerusalem. He has stretched out a line. He hath not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the walls to lament. They languish together. Now the word measure is not used, but the metaphor of measuring is stretching out a line. In other words, he stretched out his tape measure. And he measured the Jerusalem and and the altar and the people of Judea in that day. And what he found out when he measured it is that he must destroy the temple and the walls of the city. So with all of that in mind in this New Testament and Old Testament usage, we understand in the context of Revelation, which is a context of judgment, a preparation here for the sounding of the seventh trumpet, that the action of the prophet John in measuring the temple, the altar, and the worshipers is symbolic of measuring Israel and its Judaism by the standards of the words of Christ and his apostles. And the result is clear. Their sin is so great that they all three must be destroyed. This action of measuring apostate Judaism of the first century brings to mind those famous words of the handwriting on the wall that Daniel was called in to interpret that announced the doom of the Babylonian kingdom. The words were written on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. They didn't know what it meant. Daniel was brought in. Remember in the context they were having an orgy a pagan feast, and they had brought in the holy vessels from the temple of Jerusalem. Because remember, Babylon had captured and destroyed Jerusalem, and there they were in Babylon, these holy vessels. They brought them in and drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver. God had had it. It was finished when he measured them. That was the last inch. The measure was full. So this hand appeared with, with no body attached and wrote these words. Daniel was called in because nobody could do it. Here's what Daniel said. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed or measured in the balances and are found wanting. Peres, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So as it were, we're seeing in this uh, interlude in Revelation chapter 11, the interpretation of the thing, God has numbered Judah and finished it. He has weighed them 
and their Judaistic religion and temple services in the balance and found them wanting. And now their kingdom is overthrown and given to the Romans. And what they're being measured by is the word of God. The temple, the altar, and the worshipers. They are being judged according to the words of not only the Old Testament covenant, but even more importantly, the words of Jesus Christ and the apostles. You see, the temple worship of the Jews in John's day, around AD 65, was an explicit rejection of Christ. Because as Jesus himself taught, though veiled, he clearly taught through his disciples, which said this, the temple, the altar, the priests were all types and shadows of me. And when the reality comes, the shadows are not needed anymore. Christ has come. He is the true temple and his church is the true temple. Christ offered the final sacrifice on the altar of God. And he is the great high priest. Therefore, the temple services need to be disbanded. No more sacrifices are to be offered and the priesthood is to be disbanded as well. And all are to come into the new body of Christ and understand that these were simply types and shadows of the fulfillment. But Israel absolutely rejected the message of Christ and the apostles. And so here they are still carrying out their services like nothing ever happened, like Jesus never came, like he never offered his life on the cross. It didn't matter to them. In other words, every sacrifice they offered was blasphemy. Blasphemy against Christ. Every act of the priesthood was blasphemy against the priesthood of Christ. And all those who worshipped in it were those who were rebels against the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we measure, John measure them. What's the only conclusion? Chapter, or the seventh trumpet is established. It must be judged. Now we go to verse 2. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it's given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city they shall tread under for 42 months. Now this verse, just like the last one, has to be interpreted within its contextual limits. The court in view here is one of the courts associated with the temple complex as it was in A.D., well, from the time of Christ's time, even through to the end in 70. Look at that drawing I've given you of the temple. The temple itself, the, the, the temple proper, where we have the holy place and the holiest of holies and the Ark of the Covenant, is there in the very center, that highest structure. It's, it's got the number or the letter H. I encourage you to go home and study these letters and do this yourself more. But there's the temple proper. G would be a marking of the altar. You can see it's right beside this in that temple structure proper. Around that part of the temple was called the court of Israel, where the priests and the men of Israel worshipped. And right outside of that, in the, the court F, if you'll see that, they're all in a line there. H, G, I is just a, a gate. F is what they call the court of the women. 
Israelite women could not go further, but they were in the temple compound, the temple structure. That's the center of it. They're the courts. That's the temple and its courts, its altar and its worshipers of Israel. But he's told here not to measure the court that's without that central structure. The temple, the altar, the court of Israel, and the court of the women. What is that court in the historical setting of the book? Well, it's, see that big letter P? If it's to the left of your picture from the center temple area, that's called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. This is the court that was without or outside of the formal temple area, which I just described to you and which is in the center of that magnificent uh, temple area. It's a court of the Gentiles. This is where non-Jews, non-proselytes, who wanted to pray to the God of Israel and show him homage and express their faith might come. But it was without the temple. It was not, in other words, in the very temple precincts that were given to Israel. And it was separated from the temple of the Jews. If you look there, there was a wall there with some steps going up. It's a four-foot-high wall. And at the, at the entry to the next level that would take you into the temple where the Jews might worship, there were signs written. And they said to the Gentiles, basically, do not go any further. If you do, you'll be liable to death. So that is the court that John is not to measure. The court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles is not a court for wicked Gentiles. It was actually a court that was set aside for God-seeking Gentiles. I say that because a lot of people want to make that court in their symbolism of this chapter as being a reference to the wicked and the ungodly. It's not. The court of the Gentiles was those Gentiles who were actually being drawn to the God of Israel. That's why they were there. They wanted to pay homage to him. By the way, this also helps us understand some of the incidents in the, in the Gospels. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? It wasn't the court of Israel that he cleansed. It wasn't the court of the women that he cleansed. What had happened is the Jews didn't care about the Gentiles. In fact, they hated the Gentiles. And so here was this group, this area for the Gentiles, which they despised. They said, why don't we set up our money-changing tables and sell sacrifices in this court? How convenient. And so they turned the court of the Gentiles into a merchant's place. And Jesus came in his indignation because Jesus loves the Gentiles. He came to save Jew and Gentile. He came to bring all nations to God. And here was this area set aside for the nations that the Jews were profaning by turning it into a marketplace. And his indignation and anger, he took a cord and he overturned the money chamber's table, knocked loose the uh, pens that were holding the sacrificial animals, and with a cord he drove them from that. And here's what he said, Is it not written that my house shall be a place of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. And so he cleansed that court. This is the court that is not to be measured. Why? There's, there's many suppositions given on this. 
And in some ways, I admit it's a difficult statement to interpret. But if we take the context and we understand the perspective that the measuring of the temple and the altars and the worshipers is measuring the guilt of Israel and the rejection of Christ and their continuation of the whole Old Testament order of sacrifices and, and so forth, because they've rejected Christ, that their measurement is their guilt. Why isn't the court of the Gentiles measured? It would be logical to me because they're not guilty of this. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was not for Gentile guilt. It was for Jewish guilt. And therefore, he says, don't measure the court of the Gentiles. My judgment, my controversy is not with them. It's with Israel. Well, some say, didn't, didn't the Romans crucify Christ? Wasn't it under their authority in Pilate? Yes, it was. But if you read the stories in the Gospels of Christ's crucifixion and you read some of the preaching of the apostles later, we learn very clearly that Pilate did not want to crucify Christ. He wanted to let him go. He tried all kinds of stratagems to, to let him go. He even tried the strategy at the end of having Christ beaten and scourged and having brought out all bloody, hoping the people would at last be satisfied when they saw blood. But it was like the shark. They saw blood. They smelled blood. They wanted it all. Crucify him, they said. Here's what Peter says about that. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus. He's speaking to the Jewish leadership whom you delivered up. And denied him in the presence of Pilate when he, that is Pilate, was determined to let him go. So even though Pilate failed miserably, it was the guilt of the Jews. If it would have been up to Pilate in the end, Jesus would never have been crucified. The guilt lay upon them. John, don't measure the court of the Gentiles. Not only are the Gentiles who come there those who are seeking me, but my controversy is not with the Gentiles. It is with the Jews because as... Peter said on the day of Pentecost concerning Christ, as he spoke directly to the Jews, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. By the way, that's why we have A.D. 70 in the Jewish war. Because they took him by wicked hands and crucified and slew the Son of God. So that's why I don't think the court is to be measured. I think that's what the context requires. Then he says, in the holy city shall they tread underfoot. Now the holy city is a biblical designation. You can look it up in Nehemiah and Isaiah and Daniel and Matthew, other places. It's a designation for Jerusalem because it's the city that God chose and set apart for himself. There his king, David, and his successors would reign. There the temple and the priesthood would serve. Now, to tread underfoot means to trample or smash underfoot. Like you see that insect on your kitchen floor, and you tread it underfoot. You smash it. It's used, this word, this Greek word, is used literally in the New Testament of treading grapes in a wine press. You know, so they would press their grapes to get the grape juice, then they would turn into wine. They would put it into a big vat, and then people would go with bare feet. Hopefully they were clean. 
And they would just walk up and down, up and down on the grapes and smash them, and then the juice would flow. That's what this word tread meant literally. But it had a metaphorical meaning in the language of the day that it indicated from this idea of like stepping on a bug to have power over your enemy so that you are able and have the power to tread them down and crush them under your feet. Jesus used it in this way of having power over one's enemy in Luke 10, verse 19, saying to the apostles concerning the the spiritual warfare they would be involved in, he says, I give you power, here's our word, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And so this treading here means power over to defeat one's enemy. Now, the Gentiles are not being measured for judgment. Why? Because the ultimate guilt of the crucifixion does not rest on them. But here we're learning something further. Not only aren't they being judged for the crucifixion, but they're the instruments of God's judgment. He is going to use the Gentiles to tread down the temple and the city. Remember how God used Babylon to judge Israel in the Old Testament? Not because Babylon was righteous, but because they were just the chosen instrument of God. And by the way, when he was done with Babylon, he judged them for their sin. Why did God use the Romans? Because they were righteous? Uh Uh-huh, far from it. But they were still the chosen instruments of his hand. And so you're not going to measure the court of the Gentiles. They're not the ones I have a controversy with in this situation that Revelation's talking about here. In fact, I'm going to use them as the instrument of judgment. So the instrument of judgment cannot be also the object of judgment. And Romans were chosen for that. In Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says this. It's about the very things we're looking at here. He says, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof, that is of Jerusalem, is nigh. It's, 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 it's one minute to midnight. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let them not that are in the countries enter thereunto. For these be the days of vengeance. And all things which are written must be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people." And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. There's our word tread, trodden down of the Gentiles. You see, you don't measure the Gentiles in this case because they're doing the treading. And they're not guilty for the crucifixion. And they will tread down Jerusalem, it says, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, in our passage here now, it says they will tread down. You got the idea of treading now? They will be the instrument of God's judgment. They will tread down God's adversaries under their feet. They will defeat the Jews in this Jewish-Roman war. 
And then it says they will tread down for 42 months. 42 months is a period of how many years? Three and a half. It also, as verse 3 says, which we will look at next week, I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days or 1,260 days. Now, when you take the, uh, the measuring of a month being 30 days, and that is how Israel measured their months, 30 days, three and a half years, 30-day months, 42 months is exactly 1,260 days. So they're the same time period. This 42 months is the time that the Gentiles shall have power over Jerusalem to tread down Jerusalem. Now, much has been made of this number. I mean... You can read pages after pages of people's suppositions and theories on what 42 months, 1,260 days represents. Most suppose it to be some kind of symbolic and mystic number. This is noted and explained by many commentators. And I will say this, I've read a lot on this, many explanations And what they have to say is interesting, truly interesting. And I'm not in any way denying that. And it's helpful in understanding Scripture. And even may have help for our text. For example, Beckwith, in his commentary, says the 42 months equals 1,260 days, which equals three and a half years. This is the conventional Apocalyptic period of the domination of evil before the end. And that the number is symbolical of a calamitous period. So it's all symbol. Residue, in his commentary, writes this. The period of physical harm or distress is the symbolic period of 42 months, which is identical to the beast's autarchy in chapter 13, 5, and the prophecy by God in 12.6 and in 12.14. 42 months is equivalent to three and a half years, or a broken seven-year period. The complete or perfect seven is split in half, symbolic of the in-between times that are fractured until they're repaired by the Messiah. End quote. Terry gives an extended discussion of the number, seeing it as symbolic, and again has the uh, understanding that it's a broken seven. It's half of seven. Seven being the divine number of perfection, three and a half, a broken seven, man's period of triumph. Chilton, David Chilton, even gives a more elaborate discussion of the 42 months than does Terry, and he comes to the same conclusions. Now, these insights... These are insights that should be considered and applied in connection with the context. I grant that. But let me say this. There is a much simpler solution to the 42 months. And it's found when we understand that verses 1 and 2 is speaking of the temple in Jerusalem that was standing in John's day. And that the measuring is symbolic of determining guilt and punishment according to the standard of God's word and that the court of the Gentiles is exempted because the Gentiles are not guilty of breaking God's covenant and rejecting and crucifying the Messiah. But in fact, the Gentiles, that is specifically the Romans, are the appointed instruments of God's judgment of the temple, 
the altar and them that worship therein in the holy city. And that this judgment took place in the Jewish-Roman War of A.D. 66 to 70. Now, here's something very interesting for you to consider with me. You want to write this down to calculate yourself? Fine, but let me give this to you. As we try to understand this 42 months, what does it mean? What's its mystic meaning? What's its symbolic import? The war broke out in May, June, A.D. 66. For the first year of that war between the Jews and the Romans, the Jews were in rebellion at this point. The Jews were victorious for the first year. They drove the Roman army that was under Cestus Gallus from the land. And they, were, they had picked the Romans out. So the first year of the war was Jewish successes. But this embarrassment, this rebellion against Rome could not last, and the emperor Nero appointed his best general to deal with this crisis. That general's name was Vespasian. He was chosen to put down the rebellion of Judea. And in the spring of A.D. 67, around March or April, Vespasian led the Roman legions into Galilee to begin to suppress the Jews. And although the Jews often fought fanatically and determinedly, the Romans could not be stopped. By the way, their greatest victory in Galilee was their victory over the fortified city of Jetapada. But after a costly siege wherein the Jews fought heroically, the city fell on July 20th, A.D. 67, And then, I'm going to summarize real quick now, the rest of Galilee and Judea followed in due course. On June 9th, AD 68, Nero, the Roman emperor, committed suicide. And after a period of turmoil and internal strife in Rome, Vespasian, remember he was the general fighting against the Jews, was proclaimed the new emperor. And so he left Judea in the army, and he went to Rome and was installed as the new emperor of the great Roman Empire, and the army's command passed to his son, Titus. Titus. That was A.D. 68. This interrupted the war for a while. There was a pause in, uh, in the war because of all of these things that were happening in Rome. But then at the season of Passover, March, April, A.D. 70, the Roman army arrived at Jerusalem and surrounded the city and their siege began. And the siege of Jerusalem lasted six months. And the city fell to the Romans on September 26th, A.D. 70. Now please note with me in these dates, from the beginning of the Roman invasion to put down the Jewish rebellion, which was March, April 67, until the fall of Jerusalem in September 26, AD 70, was how long? 42 months. 42 months. Three and a half years. The Texans are going to, the the Romans are going to be invincible. Remember the first year of the war? It was the Jews that were victorious. But from AD 67 to this point, 42 months period of time, the Romans were invincible. They were treading down the Jews and thereby Jerusalem under their feet. 
Russell describes the historic situation well. Again, what is this 42 months? And again, if you've studied this, you've got pages after pages, theories after theories about what 42 months refers to. Russell says this, Is there anything answering to these facts, Revelation 11.2, in the history of the last days of Jerusalem? For that is the true problem which we have to solve. Here the Jewish historian throws a vivid light upon the whole scene described in the vision. Josephus tells us how on the beginning of the breaking out of the Jewish war, the temple became the citadel and fortress of the insurgents. How the different factions struggled for the possession of the vantage ground and how John, one of the rebel chiefs, held the temple with his crew of brigands called the Zealots, while Simon, another and rival leader, occupied the city. He tells us also how the Idumean force, which may properly be regarded as belonging to the Gentiles, effected an entrance into the city under the cover of night during the distraction caused by a terrific storm, and they were admitted by the Zealots, their confederates. Within the sacred precincts of the temple, it would appear that all through the period of the siege, the city and the temple courts were in the possession of these wild and lawless men of Edom who carried rapine and bloodshed wherever they came. It was by them and on this occasion that Annas and Joshua, two of the most eminent and venerable among the high priests, were foully murdered, a crime to which Josephus ascribes a subsequent capture of Jerusalem and the overthrow of the Jewish commonwealth. Have we not here all the conditions of the problem fully satisfied? The violent and sacrilegious invasion of the temple by the zealots and the Idumeans and the masterful occupation of the city by these bandits who trod down under their feet during the period of siege seems to us precisely to meet the requirements of the description. Surely it will not be said that the Idumeans were not Gentiles. Now look there at that picture again. What he's telling us here, what we learn from, is throughout the entire Jewish war, the 42 months, there was, in a sense, a horrible scene in the temple. It was held by rebels and zealots and murderers and rapists and thieves. They used this temple area that you see in that picture as their headquarters, and their rival in Jerusalem, John, had the city, and they fought. Blood was shed on these stairs and the, the, in the, the ports, the, the porticos of this temple. It was a terrible scene. As the Romans were trampling down the city, so already this defilement of this temple had taken place, and even, in a sense, Gentiles were trampling under feet in these wild, evil Idumeans who were confederates with John of Giscala, and they held the temple. Now, all of this put together, it seems to me that the simplest and most straightforward solution to the puzzle is to look at the historical facts of the Roman conquest of Judea and Jerusalem, which lasted exactly 42 months. And see that that's what it means here. What if 42 months means 42 months? But why is such an obvious answer rejected by so many? I believe it's this. They've adopted an interpretive approach to Revelation that is faulty because they will not see the biblical parallel of Revelation with the Olivet Discourse 
They will not understand nor apply the clear time markers in both this generation, the time is at hand, and so on. And they will not use historical interpretation by looking at the actual historical record of the times of A.D. 33 to A.D. 70. And so operating from wrong presuppositions, they come to wrong conclusions. And so the continuous historical view, remember that's one of the views of Revelation, that says the book of Revelation traces European history from the first century till the Reformation and beyond. They see these 42 months as equaling 1,260 years. On the theory that 1,260 days, which is 42 months, each day equals a year. And so here's what they say. Barnes says, the time here is prophetic time. By the way, whatever that means. Well, here's what he says it means. A day equals a year. And so the period is 1,260 years. Reckoning the year at 360 days. The time during which this was continued was 42 months. That is, according to the explanation given above, 1,260 years. How does he apply it? This would embrace the whole period of the ascendancy and the prevalence of the papacy. Or the whole time of the continuance of that corrupt domination in which Christendom was trodden down and corrupted by it. So they say this begins when the papacy and the Roman pontiff and the corruption of Christianity arose and for 1,260 years. That's what John's talking about. The papacy. The idealist view sees the 42 months as symbolic of the entire church age from the the ascension of Christ and the Great Commission until the last day. Hendrickson says it represents worldliness in the church, that is, this trampling down. And this condition lasts throughout the 42 months, that is to say, the entire gospel age. And then on 1,260 days, he said, this period extends from the moment of Christ's ascension almost until the day of judgment. The futurist sees the 42 months as a distant future period of time, having no reference or relevance to John's day. In other words, this 42 months hasn't started yet. So we're 2,000 years removed from John and his original audience. Rather, the 42 months applies to some future period, even to us today, when the church or of Israel, depending on whether you're a dispensationalist or historic premill, will be in conflict with the future Antichrist who will appear in the last days. Here's what Ladd writes about that. We must conclude that the 42 months, 1260 days, represent the period of satanic power in the world, with particular reference to the final days of the Antichrist. All that God's people are to suffer at the hands of satanic evil throughout the church age is but a preview of the final conclusive oppression by the Antichrist at the end of time. Okay, so the 42 months is yet future, even from our perspective, when the Antichrist will persecute the church. I say this, such interpretations are divorced from the historical context of Revelation and set aside its clear time markers for understanding its contents. Their teaching on the 42 months are bewildering. 
and have no direct relevance to John or his readers and can scarcely be claimed that they knew what John was talking about when he spoke of 42 months and the treading down of the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. What Lenski says about the future is going to be applied, frankly, to the continuous historical view and to some degree even to the idealists. He says this, Futurists have a physical temple rebuilt in Jerusalem, the Jews at the head of Christianity, and resisting the Antichrist. One's head whirls with the fancies conjured up by the exuberant exegetical premillennial magic. End quote. In conclusion, we wrap this up here. Summary and conclusion. The action of the prophet John in measuring the temple, the altar, and the worshipers is symbolic of measuring the then existing Israel and Judaism by the standards of God's word to measure them according to their guilt and their judgment. That's what the measuring indicates. And as it appears between the sixth and seventh trumpet, it prepares the way for that final judgment. The theology, though, that informs this vision is still at work today. What do I mean? God is still measuring nations. He's measuring our nation by the standard of the word of God. He measures us and says, is our conduct, are our laws, is our governance, is our interaction as people in conformity with his word, in his law, or is it not? We are measured by a standard, by a holy God. And if we do not live up to that measurement, we will be chastised by God. And if we continue in our rebellion, we will be judged. This is the history of nations. Why do nations rise and fall? Because God measures nations. Remember, he measured Babylon. He said, you've been weighed in the balances. You've been found wanting. You're done. God is measuring us today. 1 Samuel 2.3 says, Talk no more so exceedingly proud. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Which brings us down to the personal level as well. Do you know that God is measuring your life? He's measuring my life? He's measuring us in that he's evaluating us and seeing if we measure up to the standards of his word as given by the prophets and the apostles, Old and New Testament. And we will be judged according to that measurement. By the way, this is where the gospel is our only hope. We talk about our sins being laid on Christ. Well, let's use the measurement as weight. The weight, as we were weighed in the balances and found wanting. Look at your life and take the balance with the one side has the the, the standard weight, other side's the thing being weighed. And the righteousness of God's law goes down and you're way up here because you've missed it completely. Or to look at it another way, your weight of your sins smacks down the scale to the ground. No hope. But that weight of sin is transferred to Christ. He bears the weight of our sin. He dies for what we fail to measure up to. Our only hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Furthermore, in conclusion, the words that the holy city will be tread underfoot 42 months, in the grammatical historical context of Revelation, I believe refers to the invincible march of the Roman army through Galilee and Judea from AD 60, March, April, AD 67, till they conquered the city of Jerusalem in AD, September, AD 70, and it was a period of 42 months. The many fanciful interpretations of the 42 months, such as it was the papacy or the future Antichrist, cannot be defended on grammatical and historical grounds. One conclusion alone fits both grammar and history, and that is that it refers to the Jewish-Roman War and the 42 months of the ascendancy of the Roman army under Vespasian, then under Titus, that were invincible and tread down all the opposition of the Jews until they came to Jerusalem, and they tread that down. Russell cogently concludes, what then if the 42 months should really mean 42 months and nothing more? The last fatal struggle may be said to have begun when Vespasian was sent by Nero at the head of 60,000 men to put down the rebellion. This was early in the year of AD 67, and by August, September, AD 70, the city and the temple were a heap of smoking ashes. It is scarcely possible to conceive of a more striking correspondence between prophecy and history than this, which needs no dexterous manipulation and no non-natural interpretation, but the simple noting of facts registered in the annals of time, end quote. One last point of application, if you'll bear with me. Why have I spent so much time in the 42 months? It's because here we have a lesson in hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? It's the science of interpreting other people's words or language. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting what God means when he speaks to us in the Bible. Historical context is critical to correct interpretation. Historical context is always supplied in the Bible, at least in general terms. Always, God tells you what's going on before he gives you the message so that you can interpret what he's saying in the context of which it was originally said. There was an original audience to which, for example, the book of Deuteronomy was given. We cannot say that Deuteronomy is given directly to us today and we are to follow its instructions to the letter meaning we are to bring sacrifices to a temple, we are to divide our sacrifices with our servants and all that. No. Right in the beginning of Deuteronomy, it says that these were the words of Moses delivered to Israel on the plains of Moab before they went into the land. This was old covenant times before they went into the land. It was a, it was a restating of the law of Exodus Leviticus and Numbers. And so we read Deuteronomy within its historical context. We draw from it the moral law, the principles of God's truth that's there, and then we apply it today. To ignore the historical context of Deuteronomy is a disaster. How about Galatians? New Testament book. We're told the very beginning who the book was written to and who wrote it. It was written to the churches of Galatia by the Apostle Paul, therefore in in the early part of the first century, before Paul died, but it was after the church was founded. 
And then we look at cross-references in the book of Acts, and we learn that there was a problem of Judaizers who were coming into the churches and saying, unless you're circumcised, according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. Galatians was written against that. We cannot ignore all that and just say Galatians is directly speaking to us today, and we have no concern for what Paul's circumstances were or what he meant when he wrote it to that. We have to take the Bible in its historical context and its original audience, what they were being told. So why do we abandon that in Revelation? This is why Revelation becomes a mystery to people because they don't interpret it like the other books of the Bible. They don't put it in its historical context. And again, God, as I said, in all the revelation of Scripture, he always tells us who's writing, who it's being written to, and what its historical setting is. And Revelation, in a sense, goes overboard almost in telling us when it is written and when the things will happen. And so what do we do? We jettison all that. We jettison all that. And we ruin the book of Revelation. We make it, in a sense, an embarrassment. I think it's an embarrassment that good men, and they were good men, some are my heroes, thought that this 42 months was the papacy's dominance in the world. (laughs) If you approach the Bible like that in other passages, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. We can't do that. We must interpret the Bible properly. Remember what Lenski said, one's head whirls with the fancies that are conjured up by exuberant exegetical magic. What a description of most commentaries and current books on Revelation. They want to tell us that what Revelation is talking about helicopter gunships, about nuclear war, about the Antichrist and the United Nations and all that. Nonsense. We cannot look at the book that way. We can apply the book's theology to our current state, and we must. But this is a sober book that we can just read as any other book of the Bible, understand its historical context, not be uh, caught up in all of the uh, hype about what Revelation's talking about and how prophecy is being fulfilled today and all of that kind of stuff. And the revelation can really now speak to us. It can be the power that God ordained. When 42 months becomes the entire church age, which is now at least 2,000 years, or it becomes 1,260 years of the papacy's triumph, or it becomes three and a half years in some future tribulation period where there's a rebuilt temple and the Antichrist some future figures persecuting Israel or the church, then I say hermeneutics and the science of interpretation is slain at the altar of man's ideas and fancies. And all of us suffer the humiliation that this brings to the Bible and to the church. From this, we must rescue Revelation. Although Revelation is filled with symbols and visions and metaphors, the point of these all are to point to real historical persons, places, and events. What the words and grammar of the text say are understood in historical context, then revelation becomes understandable. Then it becomes edifying. It's not a mystery. It's not making our head whirl with the fancies conjured up by exuberant interpretation. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that the lessons herein will be learned. The lessons of the measuring of God, of of peoples and nations, even as it was 
in the historical days of Revelation when Judah and Judaism was measured. May the theology of that passage grip us today and may we apply it today. Furthermore, may we learn a very important lesson of interpretation. When we set aside the, the time markers, the historical context that the Bible gives to us for its books, then we are lost in a sea of human speculation and exegetical magic. We pray that we will rescue the book of Revelation from uh, those who claim to be telling us the future and what the next steps are in God's program for the world. And that we would then have the sober, biblical, honest, straightforward understanding of this wonderful book and what it means to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.